0: Good morning everyone, Good good to see everyone here and welcome to those of you who are joining us online, welcome to those who possibly would ever listen and watch this in the future while I find my scripture, welcome everyone else. Our call to worship today is from John 5, and this is Jesus' words in verse 25. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who hear or all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, this is a, a, a passage about the effect of hearing. And notice there are two aspects to this effect. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and it's already here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And I believe it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again. Not of seed, which is perishable, but unper- unperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. So the word of God is what, what, it does two things. It takes those who are dead, who are the walking dead, those who have been born into sin, every human being. And the word of God penetrates that person's heart when the word is preached and heard. And that person becomes alive unto God. Now also, there's a second part to that. That those who hear will also... Now yes, they're going to pass, but there's going to come a time where they're also going to hear another voice from the Savior. And that is the one that's going to call us out of the grave. And it's going to equip us with a new body it's going to make us not only just alive physically, but alive unto God in the Spirit beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And I'd just like to say that what we do and what we try to do here at Faith Evangelical Church is preach the unadulterated Word of God in its purest, simplest form, because that's what's going to change your heart. Not my opinions, not the elders' opinions, or anything else. It's purely the word of God that makes alive. So how do we react to that? Well, we take the word of God seriously. We listen and we anticipate God doing his work. So let's pray that he will do that today, that will open up our hearts. So let's pray right now for two things. Let's pray for confession. Let's confess our sins. And let's pray in a spirit of thanksgiving. Lord, we come to you right now with our hearts wide open. Examine us, Lord. Search us down deep, Lord, into the innermost parts. And cleanse us, Lord, from anything and everything that is not of You. Any sin, Lord, anything that we are struggling with, any guilt, Lord, associated with that, we lay it down at the feet of the cross. And Lord, that leads us to just praising You in thanksgiving. Praising You, Lord, for Your love that you bestowed upon us in Christ while we were yet sinners, Lord. You sent your Son and he died for us while we were, your, we were your enemies. You made us alive in Christ. So Lord, we come to you with just a spirit of thanksgiving today for that, Lord. Regardless of what we are doing right now, where we're at right now in terms of our life, our jobs, our personal life, our finances. Whatever it is, God, we are thankful for all that your hand has given us and especially thankful for who you have given us and that is Jesus Christ and in his name we pray amen in the of our Come back out to it's number 98 in the
1: let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be gathered together today to to just proclaim your greatness and your goodness, to exalt your name, to worship you, to say without you we have no hope, and to recognize that you are our only, our living hope, and all of our desires are for you, Lord. And so today we ask that as we Read your word as we sing, as we've just sung about the great forgiveness you've given us, uh, that we would worship you in our innermost being, in spirit and in truth. Father, we we do acknowledge, just as we've sung, that we're prone to wander, that that even though you have marked our hearts uh, permanently with your grace, that we're prone to sin, Lord, and as we've prayed already, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, that we would be right with you. Lord, there's nothing greater than knowing your forgiveness and your grace, your mercy that we, that we don't deserve, um, all because of the work of saving uh, uh, that your son Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. What a, what a great sacrifice. What suffering for our sake for our sins that we placed Him on the cross, that that is now given us forgiveness in You, we are just grateful and and praise You. And so, Lord, we ask that You would just enable us through Your Holy Spirit to be right with You, and we receive that forgiveness with great joy and gratitude. And and Lord, we we want to live lives that that honor You and please You and give glory to Your name. And we know that that's when we'll feel the greatest joy, that we'll feel the joy of your uh, glory and your life in us. Um, what a great privilege is ours in Christ. Father, we want to lift up uh, our missionary in focus this week, the Camlins, the uh, Gary and Terry. We thank you that even from New Jersey in semi-retirement, they're able to serve you in mighty ways through their work with the uh, Portuguese Bible Institute, their work around churches in the country and in different ministries. Lord, we thank you for uh, enabling them to to be faithful to you over these many years and we and we pray that you would continue to use them and that the gospel would go forth and that the people of Portugal would be blessed and that that you would reign in the lives of the people there and we pray for those who are being equipped in the seminary and and in the institute that that you would use them in mighty ways for for ministry, we pray that you'd provide for their needs economically. That you'd provide, um, continue to use the the building and and the facilities they have there. And Lord, we we pray your blessing, especially on Terry and Gary, and and continue praise to you for the health of Terry, and also just that you would continue to uh, give her uh, that health that you've given her after all of the operations that she's had. Father, we we just want to lift up needs in our congregation. We we don't know all of them, Lord, but we pray for those who are suffering from illness. We pray for those who are dealing with um, uh, sin in their lives and, and discouragement or uncertainty and fear. Lord, whatever it is, Lord, we know that you are aware of all of those things and able to meet those needs. And so we bring those before you now, the only one who can respond, the only one who has the answer to all our needs. And we, we trust that you will answer those according to your grace, according to your sovereign love and mercy. And we thank you that you've called us to your throne room of grace, that you invite <clears throat> us to share with you. you you've, you've invited us to cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. And so we thank you for that. And now, Lord, as Pastor Pat will be Bringing your word to us, we pray that your unction would be upon him, that you would use him in, in mighty ways, that your word would be proclaimed faithfully, and that uh, your work would do its work in our hearts, that we would be rooted and grounded in the truth, and that our lives would bear fruit, and fruit that lasts for your kingdom. And so use uh, this message for, for, for your glory, we also pray for the gifts and offerings that, that have been placed in the plate in the back and through tithely, Lord. We recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. We acknowledge that gratefully and give back to you from the, a little of the much you've given to us, and we ask that you'd use that uh, in mighty ways for your kingdom, and we pray that you would help us as a congregation to steward those faithfully. So we give you these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be, for our Old uh, Testament reading, Scripture reading this morning, we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 50, uh, starting in verse 22 and ending in verse 26. Genesis 50, 22 to 26. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. May God add blessing to the reading of his word, and for those who would like to hear the sermon translated into Spanish, they can dial into the number on the screen or in the back of the sanctuary, and for those going to King's Kids, they can now go to their class.
0: Good morning, and that is the end of Genesis that uh, Mr. Kevin just read, and in our uh passage today in Hebrews, we see that the author of Hebrews has been following the pattern from the beginning of Genesis. You remember, he went through Abel and Enoch and, uh, and Noah. He's given all these examples of faith. And then we've gotten to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And last week we touched a little bit on Joseph. And today we're really going to dig in uh, to Joseph and to his faith. And so let me read the passage. The passage is Hebrews 11, verse 22. It says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now, remember the context of this whole book. If you, Who remembers that, right? We, stopped, we talked about this in the very beginning, that at the very end of the book, The writer of Hebrews says, this is an exhortation. Okay, follow my exhortation. And he's covering the whole book. This book is a a book of warning. And so after he talks all about the supremacy of Christ over not only Aaron and his priesthood and Moses, and really actually Moses' priesthood as well, because he was a priest. He talks about the superiority of Christ over Melchizedek. The Old Testament, he talks about the New Covenant being superior to that, the New Covenant in Christ's blood. And of course, these Hebrews are pretty much rattled up because their whole life and their whole identity was tied in to the law, to Moses, and to the Old Covenant. And so he is now switching. Not only the other aspect of exhortation is not just to warn, but it's also to encourage. So he's encouraging them through this whole chapter, just pounding away at this concept of faith. And so they have to believe in Jesus Christ. And in order to believe in Jesus Christ and to believe who he is, it's going to require more than just an intellectual assent. It's going to require true, authentic faith that comes from God, but that is expressed through our words and our actions. And so here we see Joseph. And really what this is referring to is the Old Testament passage that was just read. They were his very last dying words. I don't know if you've ever thought about, what would your last dying words be? I don't know about you, but I often think about some grandiose, like romantic idea of my last dying words. With my whole family around me, you know, I finished The race, you know. (laughs) I fought the good fight, you know, and then just passing on or not but for the grace of God. Something romantic, but usually it's not quite like that. Usually your dying words have to do with maybe, obviously the faith that you've had, but most people that we read about in their dying words have to do with their mistakes. You know, I was... Looking it up in uh, Bob Marley, his last words, the Jamaican music uh, pioneer of reggae music, basically. He, he, he's, now, this is a guy that was wildly successful, obviously financially, but to his son Ziggy, before he died of cancer in 1981, he said, money can't buy life. And basically, the reality of the focus in his mind, the reality of that mistake of probably focusing on the wrong thing hit him at the very, very end. Frida Kahlo, a famous Mexican painter known for her many self-portraits portraits, uh, portraits and other paintings, she spoke the words, another very successful, very well-known woman, I hope the exit is joyful, and I hope to never return. Mm -hmm. And then I had to include Karl Marx's last words because they're just so ironic. He says, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And of course, that's ironic coming from the person who popularized the theory that man came from premortal slime. Anyway, Joseph's last words could not be any more opposite of all of these things. Had nothing to do with his mistakes. Had everything to do with his faith. Now, his last words are extremely revealing of his concept of God God's sovereign will, God's decrees, also God's power to bring these things to pass. But most important, it was about God's promise. And we could also say that our last dying words are always going to be, find their root somewhere, if you're a believer, somewhere in the faith or in the hope that you have going forward into that next age. Now, in this passage, it's very short, by faith, you know, when he was, di- Joseph, when he was dying, he made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his book. The reader, or the readers would be so familiar with this whole entire story. You know, the, the Hebrew writer doesn't have to give a, a commentary, let's say, like Paul would have had to do if he was writing to the Gentile church. These people know when they hear about Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph that just rushes back throughout all of history into everything that they know about faith, about the promise, and about the things that were to come. And the very first aspect of Joseph's faith that I'd like to bring attention to was his mention of the event of the Exodus. Again, we know Joseph was a prophet, right? We remember when he Made, uh, was accused with Potiphar's wife when she made some uh, sexual ac- uh, accusations against him, Potiphar threw him into prison. And as soon as he got into prison, God gave him favor and blessed him. But he also blessed him with the gift of prophecy. We saw that when he dealt with Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and the baker, he predicted the execution of the chief baker and the restoration of the cupbearer, and it happened just as he said. He also prophesied a couple of years later with Pharaoh himself, with the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream which predicted seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. This is actually what catapulted Joseph up to the right hand of Pharaoh, where Pharaoh gave him all authority over all of Egypt, second only to himself. And Joseph was definitely a prophet but was this the primary source of his expression of faith? Was this the only possibility of how he had faith about the exodus? Was it supernatural? Should our faith be dependent on our feelings or some supernatural mystical gift that we may have that, that is by the Holy Spirit? Should we fully depend on that? We have to remember that Joseph was the great grandson of who? Abraham. Abraham. He certainly heard about the faith of Abraham and how the Lord met him on several occasions and spoke to him. And there was a a very specific prophecy that had to have been passed down to Joseph from Isaac, then to Jacob, then to Joseph. God told Abraham very specifically when he made the covenant with him in chapter 15 of Genesis, he told him very specifically what was going to happen to the people of Israel. In Genesis 15, 12 to 13, it says, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and, lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said, God, unto Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and they shall serve them, and they will afflict them for four hundred years. And also that nation whom they serve I will judge, and afterwards they will come out with a great substance. It's exactly how it happened. No mention of what land would be or where they would be a stranger in. Again, this was Joseph's great-grandfather. No mention of how they would be afflicted for 400 years, only that they would be afflicted, they would be in great bondage, and that God would judge that nation and they would leave And come out with great substance. Exactly how it happened. So it's fair to say that Joseph, his source of faith, wasn't just from his prophetic ability. It wasn't from some supernatural gift that he had. It was purely his faith was in the promise, but yet even deeper, in the word of God. He believed the word that God spoke to Abraham, his great grandfather, despite the promise of affliction. Now, this can't be. I mean, this is Abraham's seed. God promised all of these great things for us. We're going to go into a land of milk and honey. This can't be. No, nope. if God says, I'm going to be afflicted. Our nation is going to be afflicted. And we are going to be prisoners in bondage for 400 years. That's not going to change Joseph's faith. He believed the word. Next, he had faith that God would visit them. You saw that in the passage, if you were paying attention, in Genesis 50, very, at the very end of the passage that Kevin read, it mentions this two times. <clears throat> it says that Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, this is Genesis 50, 24-25, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He promised, an oath to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. And that's verse 24. And then again, in verse 25, he says, "Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. Like this was so important to him. God will surely take care of you, <clears throat> excuse me, and you shall carry up my bones from here." And they confirmed that they would do that. Now, this translation of God will surely take care of you, in the Hebrew means God will visit you. And this is a really important to understand, because when God visits somebody, it's either one of two ways that he visits them. He either visits them in mercy and in grace, or he visits them in judgment. In mercy, God visited Sarah. Genesis 21.1 And the Lord visited Sarah just as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah just as he had spoken. Speaking of the rescue from exile in Jeremiah 29.10 For thus says the Lord. Now you could hear the thus is in the vows. The word visit is in the, is in the Texas Receptus manuscript which is the King James and the New King James and others. And I like that translation better for this word. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm bouncing back and forth. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. See, God, this was Jeremiah now, this is way after, he's talking about the exile, showing that pattern of visiting and deliverance. And of course, God also visits in judgment. In Exodus 20, verse 5, You shall not worship these other gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So God visits both in mercy and he visits both in judgment. Now God himself confirmed and fulfilled this rescue, this visit of mercy of his people to the people to on the and judgment actually on the egyptians and with the exodus see what had happened is is when god had first called moses and we're going to get to moses next week because he's the next one in order after joseph he says in exodus 316 moses was you know trying to go to the people that were in bondage and he says look god appeared to me in a burning bush and he told me to say and do these things and at first they didn't believe him But then God says to him, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, this is Exodus 3, uh, 16, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and I've seen what is done to you in Egypt. So they carried his coffin through the wilderness for 40 years. So when they left Egypt, they grabbed Joseph's bones The disintegrated dust that was in that coffin and they carried it through the wilderness until they got into the promised land to put him in his proper burial, which we'll talk about in a second. So we see that Joseph's faith prevailed and not only the bondage in Egypt came to pass, but God did exactly what he said he would do. He visited his people and rescued them out of bondage. So there's a direct correlation of Joseph's faith in believing in the event of the Exodus, before it even happened, and his faith that God would visit Israel in deliverance in Egypt out of that bondage and slavery. Now there's one other component to his faith in these passages, and that's his bones. Remember, we talked about that. the, The patriarch, all of them were obsessed with where they were going to be buried They wanted to be buried in no other place other than the promised land that God had said. So you remember, Abraham, when he was first called, he was in the promised land. And God was saying to him, look, this is going to be your land. I'm going to bring you and your people back to this land. And so in faith, Abraham, when he died and when his wife Sarah died, he bought the cave at Mechpelah and said, this is where I want to bury Sarah. And this is where I want to be buried as well. And in Isaac and, and Rebekah, same thing. We want to be buried in that cave. And Jacob, same thing. He made Joseph promise, get me buried. And Joseph had a tremendous procession, funeral procession, where even Pharaoh and all the elders of Egypt, they went out and they buried Jacob. And, they, and they, I believe they mourned for him for 30 days. And they put him in this cave. So they were obsessed with their bones being placed in the right spot. Now, is this request really about bones? Do you think they were really concerned about the location of their actual bones? Or do you think it was something deeper? You see, every time we, are, we, we say that we have faith, if we don't follow it up with some sort of action, that faith remains unseen. That faith remains questionable. And we know that we're, we, we, we have a whole book in the New Testament, right, that talks about this, the book of James, where a lot of people think, think that that's about work salvation. Meaning, like, if you truly have faith, you're going to work. Because without that, no, it's, it's true that works are a manifestation of our faith, but works do not save us. We are saved by the grace of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. But that faith always has legs. It always has action. And Joseph being the person that he was. Jacob being the, the shining star that he was. The, the, the actual father of the sons of Israel. And Abraham. Knowing that the whole world was going to be blessed by their seed wanted to put a stake in the ground and show the entire nation of Israel for generations to come that they didn't just talk about the promise, they believed it so much so that they were going to literally move their bones back to the physical land that God was going to give them. And that's what we must focus on and do as well. You see, if I'm a father that says Christianity, Christianity, Christianity to my children and I don't live it out, they may give me the nod now, but when they get older, they're going to say, that wasn't real. <clears throat> that doesn't mean I'm, I'm perfect, obviously. But what it does mean is that our faith must have consistent action to go along with it. And his request of moving these bones demonstrated his faith, not only in the future deliverance of Israel from Egypt, but at the same time, the receiving of the land that was promised to them, and also the anticipation of his own resurrection. Now when you combine all this, the combination of his faith, of God's intention of the affliction in Israel, in Egypt, his faith in God visiting them with deliverance from Egypt, and the burying of his bones in the promised land being carried outside of Egypt, All of these together magnify the real aspect and the real object of Joseph's faith. And it's more than just personal resurrection. You see, first of all, Joseph had his heart and mind focused in the right place. You see, Joseph had it all. He had riches beyond anything he wanted, he had. Servants upon servants. He had all the food that he made so much money for Pharaoh that Pharaoh gates told him. You can have any part of the land that you want for your people. He had influence. Like I said, Pharaoh and all the elders went with him to bury his father. But his dying wish, and most people, their dying wish is never, oh, you know, just work really hard and make a lot of money, you know. That wasn't his dying wish. His dying wish was a display of, of his faith that it truly expressed where his treasure laid for where your treasure is there. Your heart will be. Joseph had a telescopic faith. It saw through circumstances. It saw through impossibilities and it relied on God alone. He had a far reaching faith that believed in the amazing things that God had in store for not only himself, but for the seed that would come through his line. He knew the bigger picture wasn't the temporary deliverance from Egypt and the moving of his bones. It was the fact that in this promise, there was this bigger, permanent fulfillment of a final rescue of the true Israel of God. A rest and a rescue that would be once and for all, for all eternity. So Joseph had, and this is what we must emulate, he had a far-sighted faith that looked through and beyond the obstacles and the circumstances that were before him. Okay, the, He didn't just focus on this. He was able, by faith, to see through it. And this is such an important thing for us, for myself. I know we can become, and I can become so short-sighted and shallow in my faith. It's like being impacted by these little stupid little circumstances that hit me or hit us every day. Especially when our world, and when I say our world, I don't mean personal world. I mean our world, our nation, everything around us seems so godless and hopeless. Because of this, what happens is, especially in the church, is that our faith becomes inward. And surrounded and padded by the concept of me. Me and my salvation. Personal salvation can become one of the one of the things that cause us to avoid the interaction with the physical world. Going to heaven. You know, it's and and I know I was taught like that's the main focus go to heaven, go to heaven, go to heaven. Yes, I'm going to go to heaven but is that the true focus that God wants us to have? That wasn't Joseph's focus. It's not mentioned at all really in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament patriarchs, they were focused way beyond that temporary dwelling place that happens when we die. We're present with the Lord in heaven, but then when they rise from the dead, heaven comes to earth. And that's what they were focused on. We are absolutely, I believe, obsessed with the afterlife. Obsessed with it. You know, and and our culture is obsessed with it. All these scenarios and possibilities and people claiming they died and went to heaven and came back and saw all these other things. Now listen, I can't speak for them, but I can only go with what the Scripture says. Hell is another thing people are obsessed with. You know, what, people are going to go to hell, How's that work, how could God allow that, all this stuff. Where hell is not really spoken about a lot in the Bible. It's there, and it's true. Just like heaven is not really spoken about a lot in the Bible. It's there, and it's true, but should that be our ultimate focus? Again, it leads to a hyper-attention to the non-material or the spiritual. We become so heavenly-minded, as the saying goes, that we become no earthly good. Now see, Jesus, he didn't say, you know, seek first heaven and all these things will be added unto you. No, Jesus said, look, these are the realities, okay? Heaven and hell are realities, but Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else comes with that. So that one punch, that one swift punch gives you everything. It gives you the knockout victory. Seeking God's kingdom. This does not mean focus on heaven. That's not the kingdom of God, it's not heaven. The kingdom is God's rule being instituted on earth as it is in heaven. So, this is what Jesus calls see, he's called us to seek the kingdom on earth, the kingdom that he launched at his resurrection, the kingdom that is here after you are converted do you ever notice do you ever think of why jesus lived the life he lived why he wasn't just born a baby and then immediately sacrifice and there you go there's the holy blood no his life mattered even in our creeds you know we talk about he was born of a virgin and then suffered died and was buried we, we missed the whole aspect of the kingdom which was the majority of his teaching And so God wants us and even says, that's what we have to focus on. He has made us for a purpose. He didn't just poof us into heaven after we're converted. Well, I accepted Christ. See you later. Gone, right? I'm out of here. God's like, yes, that's what we needed him to do. Just say the prayer. Come on up. You're out of here. No. He saved us for something, not from the world. His ultimate purpose is in the gospel and in the propagation of the gospel through words and through actions. And that's what the gospel is about. The gospel is a proclamation that Jesus is king and that he suffered, died and and was buried according to the scriptures. And now he sits at the right hand of the father, royally enthroned with power, power and rule. And now he then takes that power and rule, and he delegates it unto his people, his church, to go out and be that light here in the earth, because he has a project he's working on. It's the renewal project. It's the new heavens and the new earth, and he's not poofing that either. It'll be changed. we will all be changed. The earth will be changed at a, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. But that is a supernatural change. The process to get there is something God is with us in, in history. Again, he's a God of present reality. He's here with us, working with us for what? To build towards and for that kingdom. And so Joseph's hope was not short-sighted. It was beyond heaven. And again, it's a, it's a tug of war, right? That the concept of heaven sounds great to me. But again, so does going back home in the midst of a war when all of your platoon and your people are fighting. You want to leave and go home? Most soldiers don't want to do that. They don't want to betray. They don't want to leave. They're in it. Why? Because of the the greater good. And that's what God wants us to do. Focus on that big picture. The big picture is Christ's victory that has already happened, but that is being implemented. He must reign until all his enemies are placed at his feet. Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor. I don't know what to choose. He was torn. Paul didn't say, Yeah, I'm out of here, guys. I'll, I'll talk to God for you when I get to heaven. I'm, I'm taking this opportunity. No. Paul, despite all the persecution and beatings and all the torment that he went through, he wanted to stay and labor. It was profitable for the fullness of life that was to come. Just look at Joseph's kingdom impact. So his labor, as in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, his labor was not in vain. Our labor that we're laboring for the Lord with right now, and it doesn't mean ministry necessarily, formal ministry, I should say. It means what you're doing For the Lord, to glorify Him, as we spoke about in Bible study this morning, to glorify Him, and it doesn't just stop there. We get to enjoy Him through the process. We enjoy Him forever. Obsession with money, seeking pleasure at all costs, pursuing happiness to the extreme. When this becomes the focus of our life, like Joseph could have had, our life becomes shallow, we become frustrated, Excuse me, we, don't, we wonder why things aren't working in our mind right, why God seems so far away. And then we become more likely to stray and seek more temporary worldly solutions that, as the Hebrews were warned about, don't neglect the salvation that you were given. Don't drift away, because that's what ends up happening when we move away from God as being our main purpose in his kingdom. So Joseph had a far-sighted faith that saw beyond the circumstances, beyond the years of bondage, and that's what we have to do. It was beyond the temporary period of the grave. You see, we have to have the same faith because there's two exoduses here that he's talking about. He's talking about the first exodus in Egypt. But all of the whole entire Bible, if you look at really throughout all the prophets, the Psalms, and in the New Testament, what is the one thing that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, continually were obsessed about? God is going to deliver us once again, like he did in Egypt. He came and delivered us with powerful signs and wonders. He's going to do it again. Why do we know that? He says he's going to do it. With his own arm, he's going to save us. And the total... So, uh, uh, prophecy being fulfilled, the scripture being fulfilled, all that is fulfilled in God coming in the form in the person of Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was the fulfillment of that rescue. But that rescue is only still part one. You see, that's just a type of the rescue to come the type of the rescue that we are going to see when we wake up with a new body on a new, renewed creation, with Christ being the light, the Lamb being the glory of God, shining forth that the sun isn't even going to need to be there. Egypt, for Joseph and for the people of Israel, obviously Joseph didn't see it. When Joseph was there, it was a land of plenty. It was a land of freedom. The people of Israel were honored. Abraham, Isaac and Joseph uh, and, uh, and, and Jacob were, were, were icons. But then as we know, things started to change. Egypt became a land of death, slavery and bondage to sin. And our land right now, I have to say, isn't too far off from that. I mean our land, our country our world. I know we look at things like abortion. We look at things as the murder, the heinous crimes that are committed, blood everywhere. It's a land of godless, godlessness, a land that, like Egypt, had freedom at first. But now, this freedom that we've had is being redefined. Take it away. Why? Because the Bible says that when when people of a nation forsake God, he turns them over to godless leadership. I don't care who you vote for or what, who you vote for. It's godless. And in many ways, our freedom is completely diminishing. I think of our freedom to speak. I think of Brother Mike here who was arrested in England not too, a few years ago for just simply preaching the gospel. Coming out and just saying things that a lot of people don't like. Not even really offensive. Just making people uncomfortable with the truth. Not purposely, not arrogantly, but just presenting the truth. In Canada right now, you can get 10 years in jail for hate or discriminatory speech. And this is interesting. The foundation of this is already laid, right now being laid. It's already laid in the U.S., I was on the Department of Justice website. It says that a hate crime, surprisingly so, must include hate and a crime. I'm totally cool with that. Most hate crime laws, they include crimes committed on the basis of race, color, and religion. I'm good with that. But it may also include crimes committed on the basis of sexual orientation. Where is this coming from? Gender gender identity, and disability. Okay, but what is a crime? Well, now in our country, calling someone other than their preferred pronoun is a crime. National Institute of Health says intentional refusal to use someone's correct pronoun is equivalent to harassment and a violation of one's civil rights. This, was un- this would be unheard of 20 years ago, simply unimaginable 50 years ago, and not even a co- part of a conversation before that. So we, always, we already had the makings of being a Christian, being equivalent with a hate crime. You don't want to call a woman who's really a man, she, or vice versa, you could get charged with a crime. Social media sites, YouTube, Facebook, they will already shut you down if you violate this so-called hate crime speech. It's simply If you simply state God and his word as the authority, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, yes, but down in one, verse 27 it says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. <clears throat> and here would be the crime, male and female. He created them. If you believe that and you express that, you need to be ready for a challenge. This restriction on speech alone puts Christianity, we've been talking about this here since I've came here for three and a half years, it puts us alone on this this, this, this trajectory towards ultimate persecution, ultimate conviction, just of speaking the truth. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, will you marry me? And I say, well, where is your spouse? And it's a man. And he goes, he is over here. And I say, no, that's a hate crime. That's what's going to happen. That's eventually, I'm not trying to be prophetic. I'm not trying to be negative. But this is the trajectory that we're on. And again, it's only the beginning. Now, our natural reaction, and this is where we need to learn from Joseph, is to fight, to kick, scream, revolt. Now, there may be time for a godly resistance and we have to take a stand against evil here and now, but we can't let the threat of Pharaoh consume us to the point of losing our focus. Now, this is the faith Joseph had in seeing the affliction that laid ahead and seeing the amount of time it would take to be free, 400 plus years, but knowing by faith God would deliver them out of it all into safety. So, despite the opposition, our focus cannot be on Egypt. It must be on the ultimate promise in the ultimate promised land. If you study the nation of Israel, you read through the Old Testament, you'll see <clears throat> Israel fought many wars, many battles on their way to the promised land. The ones where the Lord led them and where they had the right heart, they won. And when they took matters into their own hands and they went ahead of the Lord, they lost. And so we need to learn this lesson. Despite living in Egypt, as we are now, and seeing the terrible times that could be ahead, like Joseph, we have to have faith in the restoration of the world that God is doing through the gospel. We have to know that our darkest hour is the beginning of our greatest hope and ultimate victory. This victory began, again, the launching of the promised land, the true launching of that new creation. When the new creation was set into motion is when Christ came. Now you could say it, came, it happened when he, was, when he was born or when he started his ministry or when he died and rose again. said, All of that is his coming, Right? That's when it was set into motion. That's why we are called new creatures in Christ. Because new creation is swallowing up decreation through our lives and through the propagation and proclamation and living out of the gospel. And we have to see the end. It's just the beginning, it's just the beginning of the good. There's going to be a time when righteousness and truth will reign forever. We could see this in Revelation 21, 5 to 8, I am making all things new. And again, right after that, he says, but for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, and the murderers, and the immoral persons, and the sorcerers, and the idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, we know how this ends. One day, the whole entire world will be full of his glory. We know that Joseph saw this. He knew that the Lord won. We cannot be discouraged by the counterfeit victories of the enemy. Do you know this from old, from the establishment of man on earth, question mark, that the triumphant of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is momentary? Job 20, chapter 4, verse 4. Don't despair when you see the wicked prosper. Joseph didn't. He just continued. He had faith, and his faith should encourage us. He was a type of Christ who is the ultimate victor over sin, death, and evil. That should inspire us even more to model. This faith that Joseph had as we encounter the bondage, the evil, the persecution, and all the stuff that's going on around us, that is not of God. Again, we do it God's way, and and we're going to win. We do it our way, and we're going to fail. There's over 60 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. I don't have time to go through them all, but I'll go through the most important, biggest one. God led Joseph. Remember, he led him deliberately from the pit. But before that, with the dreams, he led him right into Egypt. Okay, there was the blessing and then the test. He did the same with Jesus. He delivered Jesus over to his people who crucified him by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We see that the entire story of Joseph was all meant for good by God. Genesis, it says that uh, in Genesis uh, fifty verses seventeen to twenty, when his brothers came to him and were afraid that he listen, Joseph. Now that our father is dead, Joseph's going to turn on us and kill us for turning him in and selling him into Egypt. And Joseph said, "No, that's not the case." Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. This is Christ. This is the reflection of Christ. This is the the echo from Joseph goes right into the New Testament. By sending Jesus to save people from their sins, God preserved the life of many. He released us from the true slavery that really matters the bondage of sin that has no more hold on you legally okay i know we are all wrangling with sin but guess what legally you're free you're justified by faith that's a declaration of god's righteousness over your life and that cannot be retracted ever and that should bring us joy so have faith in god's promises of Complete restoration. Let that be your focus. Know that he's going to visit you ultimately with mercy and deliverance. Bring my bones back to Canaan does not have to be our cry. We are actually living in the land that's going to be renewed. So wherever your bones may lay and disintegrate, guess what? Your DNA is never going to disintegrate. It's there forever. And I believe God is, when he raises us back up, We are going to be that imprint of ourselves, but in such a more glorious, imperishable, incorruptible way. Don't fret. This is hard, but don't fret when you see the wickedness prosper. Don't run from it. Call out the evil. Stand against it in love, but don't fret. Again, Psalm 2, know that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at those rulers who think that they're getting over on him. So if I say all these things obviously with the in in the context that every one of you know who Christ is. That every one of you here have given your life over to Him. And again, I, I say that because these promises are for God's people. If you haven't trusted Christ, your last dying words on earth, they may be clever. They may get printed and get distributed throughout all of history, but the first words in the presence of God will probably be unintelligible words of terror. Trust Christ now. Don't allow the world to engulf you with its false threats, with, with its sorcery and false miracles and all the things that the world is trying to tease us with to draw us away from God. Death and the things of this world will be swallowed up in victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing promise, Lord, that you, God, would impress it upon our heart. Lord, we we know that the battle is difficult and we lose focus sometimes of who our king and true general is. So, God, I, I ask that you would Just give us the, fill us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would turn away from sin, that we would take those besetting sins and leave them behind us. We would take the the focus that we have on the worldly pleasures, the pleasures of Egypt, and we would look forward and toward the promised land that you are ultimately leading us into. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
2: Now stand and sing with us.